Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation, a series of words in which talker Jeremy Hardy opens the microphone for a free and frank exchange of his entrenched views. This week, how to be yourself. Good evening and welcome to what promises to be over in time for the archers. I am your host and the rules are simple. Two competing applicants for the top job at a Catholic primary school battle it out for the title of Head of John the Baptist 2003. <laughs> but on a more depressing note, on with tonight's programme, which Peter Donaldson once called How to Be Yourself. I'm joined tonight by two people more used to being other people, not in an insane way, but rather in a desperate Libby Purvis linking type way, <laughs> Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy. Hello. Hello. Now, Gordon, TV addicts will be keen to know that you're appearing in a major new BBC costume drama set in the present day. Yes, it's uh, called Red Cap. Does it have Ross Kemp in it? No. Martin Kemp? No. Someone Geordie? No. Blimey, they're going out on a bit of a limb with this one, aren't they? <laughs> but it has got something to do with squaddies or coppers or something. Both. Oh, thank God. I thought for a minute that Beeb had taken leave of their senses. Now, Deb, you've recently been working in the West End. I have, yes. Directing, among others, Alison Steadman. Yes. Yes, I've been working with Alison, too. How drab the lives of ordinary people must be. Oh, ghastly. <laughs> well, on with the show. It's a new year, and I can't recall one when Britain had to make such difficult and dangerous decisions. Fortunately, another country makes them for us. <laughs> it's like having our own national lifestyle guru. <laughs> so, how to be yourself? In Shakespeare's Hamlet, which bequeaths so many now familiar expressions to our language, Polonius says in his fatherly speech to his son Laertes, To thine own self be true. He also says, neither a borrower nor a lender be, although mysteriously doesn't say, it's not what you know, it's who you know, or a swan can break your arm. <laughs> Even more disappointingly, although Hamlet tells Gertrude he must be cruel to be kind, he doesn't begin the battlement scene by saying, cold enough for you, to Horatio. <laughs> but what do we mean by the self? We often hear politicians speak of the individual. I met him once and he was an arrogant bugger. But by being yourself, I don't mean being self-centred. The one immutable thing about you is your ultimate humanity, and that you share with everyone else. As John Donne put it... No man is an island entirely of itself. Uh, do you want me to go all the way down to For Whom the Bell Tolls? Just pick out the famous bit. Uh, right, OK, here we go. Uh, yeah, any man's death diminishes me. Da -da 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 -da. Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That's it, really. Have you got any of his earlier dirty stuff? He wasn't dirty. He was very blue, like. Poets aren't blue, they are ribald. <laughs> the point John Dunn is, of course, making is that we're all part of the human family, especially in Norfolk. In fact... <laughs> in fact, his poem has a greater metaphysical point, which is that we are all a whole, like Belgium. And yet... <laughs> Yeah, most of us see the universe as a series of spheres with ourselves at the centre. We imagine a room comes into existence when we walk into it. We enter a room talking, as though no conversation could be going on. Everyone was sitting awkwardly fidgeting, waiting for a chance to listen to us again. And we forget that the secret of being a good listener is to shut up. People pouring their hearts out don't want us to pour advice out. They want us to pour the tea. 
They certainly don't want us to try and connect ourselves with their situation unless we're going through the same thing. But when they tell us they're having a hard time with their chemotherapy, we say... Oh, I know how you feel. I get this terrible giddy feeling when I stand up too quickly. (laughs) And I'm sure when the Blessed Virgin said... Joseph, last night the angel of the Lord appeared and told me that I am to conceive and bear a boy called Jesus and that he will be the Son of God. Joseph said, Yeah, I didn't sleep very well either. (laughs) And I'm sure that when Joseph Merrick, the elephant man, was revealed to a lecture theatre full of the finest medical brains in Victorian England, someone said, I had that all last week, actually. (laughs) Politicians are the worst at writing themselves into the story, making it about them. Sadly, people fall for it, especially after something dreadful like September the 11th. Mayor Giuliani is said to have acquitted himself well before the cameras. Well, how was he expected to behave? Did anyone really think he'd appear on TV wearing a Shit Happens (laughs) T-shirt? And George Bush was suddenly popular. What did he do that was so remarkable? He's a politician, and politicians have to know how to pull the right faces. That's why Robin Cook was no good. You never knew what he was trying to say. (laughs) But, of course, everybody wants a piece of something like September the 11th. People say... That was so weird, because it could have been me in that building. I mean, I've been in buildings. Not the World Trade Centre itself, but World of Leather... And if I'd happened to go for a career in the financial services industry with a company that transferred me to the New York office, I might have started work there just at that exact time if I hadn't instead become part of a closed order of nuns entirely cut off from the outside world. And we're invited to be part of the shared experience, remembering what we were doing when we heard the news, as though somehow the fact that we were collecting earwax on a hair grip makes the tragedy more poignant. (laughs) There seems to be a fear that the established order might collapse if we don't all have the same feelings about the same thing at the same time, even if it's only for appearance's sake. What we're actually thinking about isn't important. How are we supposed to stand still in silent contemplation for a whole minute without wondering what Buffy looks like naked? (laughs) We can't be expected to snap into an exact emotion at an exact time. We are not Pavlov's dogs. And yet we are supposed to salivate and indeed become sexually aroused at the thought of Kylie Minogue, but are more likely to do both while asleep next to a nun on a National Express coach. (laughs) It is, however, compulsory to like Kylie Minogue in this country. A man is made to feel weird if he doesn't fancy her. Of course, there are men who loudly proclaim that they don't fancy her, but I tend to think those particular men are deluding themselves because they say it in a way that suggests they imagine she would care. (laughs) I'm not sure whether I fancy her or not I don't think I do but am I just rebelling against what appears to be an orthodoxy I might think this is the case and that I really do fancy her were it not for the fact that her head's too small I only point out (laughs) only point out this physical frailty because she's so aggressively marketed as a sex icon and the fact is her head's just too small she has the smallest head in the world as you can tell from her teeth they are proportionate to the teeth of a camel in the mouth of a toddler if that head's a normal size those teeth must be eight or nine inches long And we're supposed to be excited that she's got a bottom. Of course she's got a bottom, otherwise she'd fall down the toilet. (laughs) But it's hard not to fancy someone when we're so programmed to fancy them. It's not easy to be yourself when you're bombarded with propaganda day and night. For example, the news media tell us at every opportunity that we, the public, are hostile to strikes. Or, if we're clearly sympathetic, that we won't be for long. 
The newsmen talk about misery for commuters. <laughs> it's disruption, but not misery. And anyway, we British love being disrupted because it gives us a chance to be plucky. <laughs> My main fear when a plane hits turbulence is that someone will start the community singing. And I'll go to my death with the sound of ten green bottles ringing in my ears. But all too easily, we fall into being the consumers the government wants us to be, treating public services as a marketplace for our personal requirements. The British are terrible for mithering about our public services. We've always got some negative anecdote about something that happened to us, but we should have a care. We mocked BR and we lost it. We complain about the NHS, which is headed the same way, and we should support the firefighters if we don't want them to be privatised or forced into a partnership with the rain. <laughs> but there are British people who could be rescued from a burning building, a firefighter slinging them over his stroke, her shoulders, and carrying them man-stroke womanfully down flights of stairs through choking smoke and scorching flame and getting them safely out the door and into the street, and it'll be the fact that he bumps their head on the doorframe on the way out that sticks in their mind. <laughs> and forever after in a day they'll take any opportunity to say, Don't talk to me about the bloody fire brigade. I've never been the same since they banged my head on that doorframe. The sad thing for me is, I used to love door frames, and I can't even look at one now. <laughs> when I haven't been outside for six months, I'd use the window, but they'd probably try to rescue me. And if they were well-to-do, they might say, If a fireman's carry works for you, fine. It didn't work for me, and I'm looking at alternatives. The public sector can't be expected to carry everyone, and if I can afford to pay to be hoisted through my bedroom window by private helicopter, that's my choice. There's nothing wrong with a two-tier fire service. Obviously, there must be a safety net for those who have to jump. <laughs> but although I'm arguing we should resist the indoctrination that tells us we're all separate units in competition, I'm also arguing that we should resist the indoctrination that tells us we are all one community of Kylie fans. <laughs> It's in the nature of capitalism that we massively overproduce celebrities who must then either be humanely destroyed, sold cheap to pensioners, or forced onto a reluctant public. <laughs> Part of the popularity of Phil Collins is that he's supposed to be an ordinary bloke. The only ordinary thing about him is that he's ever present. Now, you might protest, say what you like about Phil Collins, he happens to be a very popular entertainer, but he's not. Phil Collins is not popular. Nobody loves Phil Collins. <laughs> Tired people find him acceptable. <laughs> Kylie, however, has achieved something seemingly more remarkable, which is to overcome all resistance to her. No one appears to revile her in the way that all sentient and alert people loathe Phil Collins. Kylie now falls into the British celebrity category of much loved, meaning not hated. <laughs> But what can you say about her? She's not a bad dancer, not a bad singer, she's quite pretty and she gets them out enough to show willing. She <laughs> represents the triumph of mediocrity. It's not even essential to her fame that she keeps doing what made her famous because she is now a personality. This word means not only an individual whose reason for celebrity is forgotten or obscure, it also refers to the non-physical attributes of each individual self. What do people mean when they say someone has a great personality? When I was a teenager, it meant that they were ugly. <laughs> Increasingly, when people talk about personality, they mean presentation rather than character. Anne Widdicombe is a character in the sense that it would be better if she were fictional. <laughs> 
although she manages to turn her looks, or at least her apparent disregard for them, to her advantage. In most people's eyes, she's no oil painting, more of a collage. But she's... <laughs> but she's created, with considerable help in the media, the myth of someone who must have personality going for them instead. In fact, the annoying truth is that lots of people who are very good-looking are also beautiful on the inside, and lots of people who are not very good-looking could use an internal makeover as well, because people's faces tell a story. Anne Widdicombe wants to see all asylum seekers rounded up and put in detention centres. It would be strange if she had a winning smile. <laughs> I suppose what we should mean by personality is not the account a person gives of themselves, but that person's very essence. Ugh. Debbie, grow up. No, I was just imagining a perfume called Essence of Widdicombe. Mm. <laughs> the smell of the fair. The only place should be an attraction. But <laughs> we digress. I am talking about the inner, deep qualities, and the trouble is we can't settle on a collective name for them. We talk about soul, mind, brain, heart, backbone, guts fortunately not bladder, to describe the mess of thoughts, drives and feelings we have. The soul as a concept is really the property of the religious, meaning the thing that outlives the body, apart from the eager relatives keen to get their hands on the Clarice Cliff tea service. But what I've never understood is whether the soul is just a given or whether it grows. For example, does a grown-up have as much soul as Otis Redding and a fetus as much as Craig David? <laughs> Fundamentalist Christians think that our spirits are God's property, but I think there are souls. <laughs> but is there a collective soul, a human spirit that unites rather than distinguishes us? Is there something that binds us? Eggs. I knew you were going to say that. Well, there was an inevitability about it, Jeremy. The weight of history was behind it. Interestingly, some people think time is curved and the past and present coexist. So, in a way, I'm not only the most recent, but the first person to make that joke. So it might be that the living and the dead all exist at the same time in a kind of cosmic Bournemouth. So, <laughs> so past and future are happening at the same time. And what about our present? You get a book token at the end of the series. Which has already happened in another dimension. Oh, good, I'll keep it then. <laughs> Anyway, as we were saying, each person has intrinsic worth and it's that that makes them an essential part of the whole. This principle underlies concepts of human rights. We don't earn these rights, they are universal individual rights. Despite this, governments and corporations feel able to make judgments about who lives, who dies, who eats and who starves. Our government judges people suitable immigrants only if they have the skills we've forgotten to train ourselves in. Racist journalists ask why we should help asylum seekers who've done nothing for this country. Well, give them a chance, they've only just got here. <laughs> Newborn babies never lifted a finger to help anyone, but you do the spare room up for them. <laughs> and invariably, economic migrants and asylum seekers do contribute to our cultural and economic richness, but in a way, that's not the point. If our being alive gives us the right to live, then we have a right to take up a bit of space in the world, a right to live because we are born, not because of where we were born. But does that right outweigh the collective rights of a community, a village, a town or a country? Yes, it does. Good, I thought it did. I was just checking. <laughs> Even if the majority of people you live among or work with dislike your race or your sex or your sexuality, that doesn't give them the right to hound you. For example, homosexuality does not of itself impinge on anyone else's freedom. If someone is rude, smelly, violent or interested in personal finance, that is oppressive. <laughs> 
If you just don't like the idea that their bedroom has matching genitals, that's your problem. <laughs> now, it might offend against your religion, but again, that's your problem. If, if they don't share your creed, you can't expect them to follow its strictures. And don't rope God into it. I'm sure if he's offended, he can handle it. I've had, over the years, many complaints about blasphemy, and not one was from God. <laughs> All were from humans presuming to speak for him. An omnipresent supernatural force who can plague you with locusts, part your seas and make you pregnant by courier does not need the legions of the pious firing off inky protests on his behalf. But of course it's not God who's offended, it's they themselves. And there is, I think, a difference between offending someone and seeking to humiliate or oppress them. Sometimes an attack on religious beliefs has at its heart the belief that other people are inferior to us and that they hold those beliefs because they're barbaric or demented or conspiring against us. Hence fascist parties in Europe, anxious to play down their traditional anti-Semitism, have now focused their hatred on Muslims, most of whom are conveniently dark of face. But what's so scary about Muslims? One of the five pillars of Islam says they must give 2.5% of their income to good causes. They don't get a lottery ticket in return, and Billy Connolly doesn't see a penny of it. <laughs> but it's not just neo-Nazis who have it in for Islam. George Bush thinks it's a great religion. It's just the people who believe in it he can't stand. <laughs> and the public seems to need a bogeyman. Opinion polls show how quickly we can decide someone is a threat. After the Bali bombing, support for the attack on Iraq leapt up despite the fact that Saddam is unconnected to Al-Qaeda, which makes me wonder if the same people took part in the poll from one week to the next, in which case there should have been other questions, such as, do you suffer from violent mood swings? <laughs> and do you actually have a clue about anything? <laughs> and in conspiracy theory, anybody can be in on the conspiracy because it's hard to prove a negative. You say to someone, well, what makes you think Matthew Kelly is a key member of a secret network of fanatical, violent Quakers? And they say, well, what makes you think he isn't? <laughs> if you think I'm being silly, read the evidence against the people in Guantanamo Bay. And aside from Islam, there's nothing much to connect Iraq with Afghanistan until Bush conquers Iran and then the pipeline can go all the way through. <laughs> Politicians prefer simple answers, like the ills of society being the fault of black people singing songs that don't have the phrase doodah in them anymore. <laughs> but what does any of this have to do with the self? Deb? Um, issues of identity. Who are we and is it defined by group identity, belief systems and so on? And also the fact that an attack on our group identity is more oppressive than an attack on ourselves. Exactly, Gordon. How do you mean? Well, if you said, Debbie, I hate you, that would be more personal but less offensive than, Debbie, I hate you because you're blonde or Catholic or female. Or from Birmingham. Yeah, all right, leave it. <laughs> because that would be a preconception about a group identity and an attack on Debbie that sees not the whole person but the person's whole self is defined solely by one aspect of them. But she is from Birmingham. I know that, but she hasn't taught her parents. Oh. <laughs> right, well, when in doubt, define terms. Ah, but Jeremy, what do you mean by define? Shut up. <laughs> what do we mean by the self? We all like to think that we are our own person, an individual, but we're subject to a myriad of influences from the moment of conception. There's great debate over inheritance and environment, except in the mind of Prince Charles, who believes that the environment is something he rightfully inherited. <laughs> Some scientists are keen on the idea of inherited behavioural characteristics. They point to extraordinary coincidences. 
twins separated as babies who come together and find they are both characters in an implausible and tedious Shakespearean comedy. <laughs> it's very hard to separate nature from nurture because they influence each other. A healthy plant untended can wither. A person like Carol Vorderman might have a very high IQ, but after years of doing work that's mindless and soul-destroying, end up a vacuous, gibbering wreck. Actually, it took about two days. <laughs> we have choices as well, a degree of free will. It might be said that you can judge a person by their actions, but the same action might result from different causes. A person might do a bad thing for a good reason, or a good thing for a bad reason. Most of us won't tonight walk upstairs and murder our sleeping families. But is it because we're good or because we can't remember what we went up there for? <laughs> Perhaps we should judge the action and not the person. But then how do we decide whether we like someone or not? Well, one thing we can all do is try to imagine what it's like to be someone else. Put yourself in their position, walk a mile in their shoes. Don't be too quick to judge. You see a refugee woman from Eastern Europe begging with a bunch of kids in tow and you think, God, I mean, look at that woman. She's got all those kids and she can't afford them. Why have them if you're not able to bring them up? Pause and think, Oh, hang on. Those are my children. Oh, my God. It's the au pair. How embarrassing. <laughs> but how does thinking about what it's like to be someone else help you be yourself? By making you real. No, shush, I know this one. <laughs> By making you realise that your own behaviour and attitudes are conditioned too. To be yourself takes some self-awareness and honesty. The problem is, how do you get to know yourself without becoming self-obsessed? Well, self-discovery is like being a mathematician. It's good to understand your subject, but you must also realise that it's not in the least bit interesting to anybody else. And if you think about it for more than short periods, you have a behavioural disorder. <laughs> Unfortunately, some people think that being themselves means thinking of nothing else. To these people, I cannot say, be yourself, because it would be better if you weren't. However, since you can't become someone else, much though you idolise me, and I understand that, what you can do is change yourself and then be it. But to change, you have to be able to sort out good qualities from bad ones, and most of us have a notion of ourselves completely at variance with reality. For example, Debbie, how would you describe me? Self-righteous, long-winded... Self-effacing? No. Self-important, insecure, high-maintenance... Let's imagine I'm in the room. Oh, a mighty yet sensitive freedom fighter with a voice like Paul Robeson and a package like Nureyev's. Oh, I'm very flattered. Not by those trousers, you're not. Wow. But the thing is, Jeremy, men want women to be impressed by them. Usually we're not, but sometimes we're like you anyway. You see, Jeremy, men and women are different. Really? Oh, yes. <laughs> a man's problem is that he meets a woman and wants her never to change, but a woman takes a man on much more as a project. <laughs> but what about our inner selves, the real us? It's not that simple, Jeremy. It's not just a question of layer upon layer like an onion or a youth hosteler. So, so what does being yourself mean? You really should have thought this through before you booked the studio. You are always yourself as a totality. The totality is who you are. I don't think we can be everything about ourselves all at once. It would be too complicated. Only for men. Why? Can you read a book and watch telly at the same time? No. no. Can you do your makeup and change lanes at the same time? Can you? Yes. Safely? Well, we get the odd smudge. But we, have... <laughs> but we have better concentration, so we have a clearer idea of who we are because we can keep more things in our conscious mind. I mean, can you remember every detail, every stupid little thing you've ever done? No. 
ask your wives. Ah. <laughs> so the reason that women appear more complex than men is that women have got more going on on the surface. Aha. A man just thinks, want pie, order pie. <laughs> a woman thinks, I know I want chocolate mousse, but I remember how many calories it has. I feel a yearning for it now, but I can predict that I will feel guilt because I remember earlier mistakes and have learnt from them. And I hear you say you want pie, but I'm able to overcome your wish for pie and rationalise that if you order chocolate mousse, I can eat it and it doesn't count. <laughs> well, that, that's just deluding yourself. Yeah, well, self-delusion is a part of who we are. What about reality? Well, what's real? How do we know we're not androids with implanted memories built by a scientific genius? Because no genius would go to the trouble of creating something with balls at kicking height and hips that aren't plastic already. <laughs> well, nature doesn't always get things right. True. Mother Nature sends us into the world itching and looking ridiculous, never caring that the other species have all got well-made, comfortable bodies and are laughing at us. <laughs> We speak of human nature, but part of our nature is to overcome nature, to improve our lot and ourselves. Yes. We might be born without some ability, but still triumph. Have no gifts or acting, but still end up on Hollyoaks. <laughs> and our genes aren't us. Our humanity is us. Which is what I said at the start, so I've proved it. Jeremy, making an argument isn't about proving it. It's about taking a stand, restating it at the end, and filling up the middle as though you know what you're talking about. Yeah, and you've kind of failed. But to err is human. Who said that? Pope. Oh, he's still quite lucid then. Pope, <laughs> not the Pope. Oh, anyway. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we're nearly through, and I thought I'd give you the opportunity to ask any questions that you want to ask. Uh, if you want to ask me about anything in the show that wasn't clear, got any problems with a personal, emotional or sexual... <laughs> there was a gentleman who put his hand up there, a comrade there. Sorry. Um, gentleman, member of the public, ordinary person. What should London do for the next New Year's Eve celebrations? Well, now we can't go to Trafalgar Square. Yeah. We should just all get in our cars and go to the edge of the new congestion zone and just go backwards and forwards like that. <laughs> All, all through the night. I think it's terrible, this congestion charge. I mean, I'm wheezy. This is going to be terrible. <laughs> Tax on me inhaling. Me. Gentleman there with a hoodie with, with Metallica on it, I think, but my eyes are failing me in my twilight years. Anyway, carry on, young man. Pretty little thing, aren't you? Uh, I could buy you a flat in town, my dear. Uh, I could make your life very comfortable, you know. <laughs> Chief Constable in the police. Um, sorry, go on. Do you think um, when George Bush wins an election and therefore gets voted out at the White House, has he got a future in Hollyoaks? That's a very good point. People sneer at Saddam, but at least he did win the election, didn't he? <laughs> I mean, fair play, it might have been slightly crooked, but at least he got 100% rather than less than 50. But um, any other questions? From, there's a man there. Look, this is spreading like wildfire. I've opened a Pandora's box. Pandora was a woman who had a box. And when she opened it, stuff... She, and she had heads of a snake, and she turned behind her and turned to a pillar of salt, and they were Argonauts. Um, and King Solomon burnt the cakes while hiding in the oak tree. Anyway, I suppose we'd better wrap things up. So, how to be yourself. What's my conclusion? That to be yourself... To be human is not something you can do alone. It's something we can only do as a community, all together. You know what that means? I'm afraid so. All together. Ten green bottles hanging on a wall. Ten green bottles.
Jeremy Hardy Speaks to the Nation was the result of the combined influences of hereditary, upbringing and pressure of time on Jeremy Hardy. It featured Debbie Isaac and Gordon Kennedy, the producer was David Tyler and the programme was a positive production for the BBC.